Learning Italian slowly. I learn three words each day. It's been seven months now, and perhaps I could carry on a conversation with a Sicilian child if she spoke slowly, in present tense, and only about pencils and dogs and cheese. <laughs> Sometimes I feel my new Italian self growing inside me. He's a little man who gesticulates as he speaks. He rides his bicycle to the market to buy eggplant, anise, and porcini, then delivers them to his elderly mother. In the afternoon, he plays bocce with the older men. The children mimic the way he whispers to himself, the grimaces he makes with his face. When the moon comes out, he slicks back his hair and sings beneath the window of the woman he loves. What a sight he is, down on one knee, his arms outstretched, so willing to make a fool of himself over and over again. Tula. Books are door-shaped portals, carrying me across oceans and centuries, helping me feel less alone. But my mother believes that girls who read too much are unladylike and ugly, so my father's books are locked in a clear glass cabinet. I gaze at enticing covers and mysterious titles, but I am rarely permitted to touch the enchantment of words, poems, stories, plays, all are forbidden. Girls are not supposed to think, but as soon as my eager mind begins to race, free thoughts rush in to replace the trapped ones. I imagine distant times and faraway places, ghosts, vampires, ancient warriors, fantasy moves into the tangled maze of lonely confusion. Secretly, I open an invisible book in my mind, and I step through its magical door shape into a universe of dangerous villains and breathtaking heroes. Many of the heroes are men and boys, but some are girls, so tall, strong, and clever that they rescue other children from monsters. what she taught me. She taught me linking verbs, predicate nouns, long division, have a Kleenex ready, an apple a day. She taught me three-quarter time, Greenwich mean time. She taught me do, re, mi, Mexicali rose, rose, my rose of San Antone. She taught me peas, 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 eating goober peas. She taught me that a peanut is a goober pea in certain parts of the world, that it is fine for things to be different in different parts of the world. No two goobers alike in their dry red skins, their pockmarked pods, that there are latitudes and longitudes we have never seen, that she had seen some part, and so would I, that I need not forgo either the swings or baseball, 
that spelling is on Friday, and it is okay to learn more than one list, including the hard list. It is not showing off. It is using what you have. That using what you have will not please everybody. That marrying a man of a different stripe is not a popular thing in a small town in the 50s, and divorcing and coming home with a child is even worse. And that you get up every morning anyway and do your work. My brain is really good at remembering trivia. I can read a list of unusual facts or look at a map and see the capital cities, and it just stays in my brain. This was really helpful in school, but it is not actually that handy in real life. Um, I'm pretty good at yelling at, out the answers when I'm watching Jeopardy and at trivia games. But right now, you can get almost the answer to almost anything you might want to know in the phone that so many of us carry in our pockets. It's not that useful to memorize these sorts of things. I would much rather have a brain that easily retains more important things, like the names and faces of all of you here today, or how to change the oil in my car, or the recipes that I make over and over and over again and have to look up every single time. So the high point of having this sort of brain came for me in seventh grade. I placed second in the state national geography bee. Yeah, it was really exciting. So it's like a spelling bee, but it's all children taking turns answering questions about geography and not, instead of spelling words. And I was a kid who liked to look at maps and read about other countries, and my brain just retained a lot of it. So after competitions in my school social studies class and the, then a whole school competition and a standardized test, I eventually found myself on the auditorium of a local university competing with the best 7th and 8th grade geography trivia whizzes in Washington State. I placed second. I don't remember the question that I lost on, but I remember the answer. It was the Ozark Plateau. And as the second place finisher, I won an atlas, which remains in a place of honor on my bookshelf, even though it is more hopelessly out of date with every passing year. In that atlas, Kuwait is a province of Iraq, because that was before the Gulf War. For a long time, an embarrassingly long time, I thought that this triumph in trivia was a sign of personal virtue. I thought it made me a good person in some way, when all it meant that I had a brain that was really good at memorizing things that are not actually that useful to have memorized. It certainly doesn't make me a bad person, but it's pretty value-neutral. Perhaps knowledge of geography can create empathy, as though knowing more about the geography of Burundi might encourage me to care more about Burundians, but that's a pretty indirect way to get to that emotion. Conflating academic performance with personal worth is a trap that our culture sets for our children. 
one that I fell right into. We grow up in school environments where most of us are constantly evaluated and judged based on our ability to retain specific facts or perform specific mental tasks. We are graded on all of this, and those grades then shape our future possibilities. It's hard not to internalize that and carry it into the world in other ways. I have a video clip for you all that illustrates, again, learning taken to its competitive extreme. So uh, this clip is from Portlandia, which is a sketch comedy show that mocks the resident or some of the residents of Portland, Oregon, and their particular and peculiar ways of being in the world. And these people get very competitive about who is the most widely read. So. Oh, Maggie's running late. Okay. Hey, did you guys read that thing in the New Yorker last month about how golf is an analogy for marriage? I did. Mm -hmm. I did read that. Do you hear the thing at McSweeney's? Mm. I was comparing CD tracks and album tracks. Did you read that? Yeah. Did you read that thing in Mother Jones about eco chairs and eco ways to sit? I did. Yeah. I did. Did you read that thing in Spain about all the festivals? Uh-huh. Did you read that thing in Pace? It was about the National. Oh, I saw that. Did you read that thing in Dwell about all the mid-century houses? Yeah. Did you read the New York Times? Yes. The New York Observer? Yes. Washington Post? Yes. Wall Street Journal? Of course I read it. Did you read that steampunk article in Boingway? I did not like the end of it. Did you read that skywriting over the Willamette River? Yes. Did you read that fortune cookie? Yes. From last night? Yes. Did you read it? Yes. There were two. Yes. Did you read that thing that guy wrote in the sand on the beach? Yeah. Did you read the Portland Mercury? Yeah. Did you read the Willamette Week? Yeah. Did you read the Seattle Stranger? Beginning to end. Did you read the SF Weekly? I loved it. Harvard Lampoon? Well written. Did you read Mad Magazine? I did not like the end of it. Did you read Kathy? That was cute. Did you read Family Circus? Sure. Did you read Calvin and Hobbes? Sure. Did you read the Boston Globe? Sure. Did you read the Washington Blade? We read it together. Did you read? Uh huh. Did you read? Mm -hmm. Did you read? Of course I did. did you read? I read it to a friend of mine. Did you read the closing credits of that movie? Yeah, did you read that book? Did you read it? Did you read the Bible? Did you read it? Did you read it? Did you read it? Finger writing on the window? You did? Because I did. Did you read it? Did you read it? Hey, Maggie. Hey, Maggie. Did you guys read the New Portland Monthly? It's crazy. probably never been in the conversation that gets quite so competitive about who knows what, but I think we've been in plenty where people suddenly, subtly compare or compete about how widely they've read or how much schooling they've had or how many credentials, all of the fancy letters they have after their names. And sometimes we treat learning as a way to show off our value or our virtue. I know I've done that, and perhaps you've done that, too. Confucianism holds out another reason for learning. Learning, when done right, makes us better people. It is the cultivation of virtue. Confucianism is our religion of the month at People's Church for November, and it is a wisdom tradition that includes, among its symbols, the yin-yang symbol on the upper left of our quilt, and this symbol is shared among a lot of Chinese religions, so it's not just theirs. 
Confucianism presents an alternate, alternate view of the purpose of education. The purpose of education is not to create brains full of facts, but people full of compassion and wisdom who live in right relationship with one another. One might expect this sort of teaching from a founder of a religious tradition who was also a professional educator, a man revered as the first teacher. The word that the followers of Confucianism use for that tradition is rugia, which translates as school of scholars. Confucius, the man, was the first private teacher in China. He was a modest man who said he did not create any new truths, but just transmitted the ancient teachings in a new way. He lived from the 6th to the 5th centuries before the Common Era, at about the same time as Socrates, Buddha, and the Hebrew prophets. And details of his life are murky, but tradition holds that he was born in Khufu, in what is now the Shandong province in eastern China. His family was poor. He was a great student in fields as diverse as ritual, archery, charioteering, calligraphy, mathematics, poetry, history, and music. He became a private teacher and opened his school to men of all backgrounds, which was a radical idea in his time. He married and had children. He dabbled in politics, but was not successful. He taught thousands of students before he died in his early 70s. In the centuries after his death, the school of scholars has spread through much of East and Southeast Asia, often being practiced alongside Buddhism, which we explored last month, and Taoism, which we'll get to in February. And in that part of the world, there is no understanding that a person has to pick only one religion to practice. It is a common saying in China, at least before the advent of communism, that Chinese are Confucians at work, Taoists at leisure, and Buddhists at death. And after being suppressed for the first decades of communist rule in China, Confucianism is back, with leaders now quoting Confucius regularly and Confucians' writing being taught in schools. And self-proclaimed new Confucians are attempting to apply these ancient teachings to our modern world and eliminate some of the sexism and patriarchy from them. As one might expect from a tradition that calls itself the school of scholars, followers of Confucianism study as a religious practice. In its first centuries, a practitioner of Confucianism would devote themselves to the study of five texts, called in the tradition the five classics. All of these texts predate Confucius, though he's credited with editing and reforming them. The texts are the I Ching, a manual for divination, two books of history, a book of poems, and a book about etiquette and ritual. This wide-ranging study was said to help cultivate virtue. The core text changed after a reform movement in the 13th century. Those texts were replaced by ones authored by Confucius and his followers on similar topics. And that later collection of books was the basis of school curriculum and civil service exams in China from the year 1313 until 1905. It's just a stunning amount of time. From what we know of Confucius, we know that he probably wouldn't be particularly pleased with his books being something that students or aspiring civil servants learn by rote or cram before exams. 
Studying is a way to improve one's character, he taught. He argued that by learning, we were not preparing ourselves for careers, but learning about virtues and how to practice them. Through studying texts, learning from the example of virtuous people, and learning how to do things in the proper way, we build character. And when we improve ourselves, we improve our communities and the wider world. Confucianism, of all the world's major religions, is among the most focused on ethics. There's little teaching about the afterlife or anything supernatural. And for that reason, the scholars of religion often debate whether it is actually a religion. It's really hard to define a religion academically. But whatever it is, through study and learning and application of its texts, it teaches a specific way of being in the world, and that way of being is called Ren. Ren doesn't translate easily into English. It has been translated as humaneness, benevolence, altruism, love, compassion, and human-heartedness. Its Chinese character combines the image of a human being with the image of the number two, leading some to translate it as right relationship among people. And that echoes much of our project here at People's Church, trying to live in the world in right relationship, trying to live with integrity. How does one practice Ren? Through the practice of Li, which is usually translated as doing things in the proper way, though that might lead us to limit all that Li can be. Li is etiquette and propriety and manners. It is being hospitable and treating others, especially elders, with respect. It is taking pleasure in moderation and listening more than one speaks. It is to recognize every situation as one where virtue can be practiced. One scholar says, Lee is to make space for, reference in, for reverence in all things, treating, treating seemingly ordinary interactions as if they were sacred ceremonies. Lee are all the things we do to make our values real. Lee is when we are the hands and feet and voice of kindness and love and justice. It is all the small and big ways we seek to create heaven on earth to create the beloved community. Confucius teaches that Lee and Ren together are a self-perpetuating virtuous cycle. When we commit ourselves to Ren, we practice Lee, which then increases our feelings of Ren, which then leads us to practice more Lee, and so on and so on and so on. And all of this is not self-improvement for its own sake. Our internal work ripples out to make our families, our communities, and our world better, more rooted in humaneness and right relationship. So through the intentional practice of Ren and Lee, one might become a Junzi, which is an exemplary person, a sage, the highest achievement in Confucianism. The Junzi is a person who approaches every person they meet with the question, how, or the questions, how can I accommodate you? How can I make your life better in this moment? There are no other worldly rewards for this achievement, just the satisfaction that comes from living a life of meaning, purpose, and virtue. The satisfaction of watching others live better lives because they are inspired by your example. And humble Confucius, when others would call him a sage or a junzi, would decline such praise, saying that he was just someone trying his best, 
someone who still often failed to live by the virtues every day. It's not only a Confucian idea that education should produce good people, not walking libraries. This conversation is ongoing in our public schools with much debate about what sort of character education might, might be best and whose definition of good people we might be trying to form. Here at People's Church, our children are learning things that we hope will help them be good people. Most of our children are learning about world religions, just as we are today. They're learning that stories, teachings, and practices, so that these wisdom traditions might inform their own spiritual truth and their own quest for truth, and so that they will be good neighbors and friends in our religiously diverse world. Some of our children are participating in the coming-of-age program right now, where we encourage them to pass their lives through the fire of thought and name what it is they believe, what truths they hold fast, and what virtues they seek to cultivate in their lives. Other youth are participating in the Our Whole Lives sexuality education class, where they reflect on how our values of respect, justice, and inclusion might influence their sexual decision-making and the information they need, and get the information they need to make good choices. And it's not just the children and youth who participate in religious education here. In the adult religious education classes I teach, I often remind people that there are no grades, which is my shorthand for urging us all to learn as much as is useful, but to attend to the relationship and the meaning more than the facts. We're not there to memorize things so we can perform well on Jeopardy. It is my hope that what we learn here and everywhere helps us cultivate compassion, love, and right relationships.